it is not pig and idol. <laughs> I misheard that after having a few drinks. So, uh, a few, yeah. only, only, a, only a, a few. It's amazing that there actually is a pig and idol. Is there really a yeah, pig and I idol? I sent you the. I sent you the I link. Didn't see the pig and yeah. idol. I'm gonna have to check this out. Hello and welcome to the Damn Venture Podcast, the podcast where we're stopping the flow of BS in the venture capital industry. I'm Andrew Chan, and today I'm excited to be joined by Eric Wu. Eric is from Revere VC, and he's not part of our typical demographic of people that we have on this podcast. However, he serves a very important role in this ecosystem and also has a lot of experience in both spaces and times that are relevant to emerging managers and early career venture capitalists. Prior to being in his current role, Eric has held a wide variety of positions. The one which I'm most excited about as I was digging into his LinkedIn was that in the year he was for seven months an engineer at the University of California, Berkeley, where he similarly holds a mechanical engineering degree from. Eric, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Andrew, it's great to be here, and thank you for aging me by that that introduction. <laughs> but I won't hold that against you. Um, we we can bleep okay. out the year in post. Don't <laughs> okay. don't worry. But I, I think maybe the best place to start here, because this is a little bit of a rarity for podcast guests, is to talk about what you do now, how you got there, and how you're involved with both early career VCs and emerging managers as a starting point. So I am the co-founder and CEO of Revere VC, and our inspiration really is this um, concept of how do we bring better data, transparency, standardization to an asset class that has, you know, kind of coasted along for many, many years, if not decades, around obscurity and sort of, you know, closed-door meetings and you know, there's only one place you can get venture capital and it's going up and down Sand Hill Road, right? So so Revere uh, at its core is really this idea that we should be looking at the venture asset class the same way that we invest in all the other venture asset classes. We need the tools. We need the data. We need the appreciation and understanding of capital flows. And so, so, so Revere was really born from that. And it was taking all of the institutional knowledge from my previous experience, which I would love to unpack, and then putting it together, right? And what that product is is still kind of in its formational stages, but I think that's the simplest way to kind of put that concept. Absolutely. And I mean, that makes a ton of sense. Obviously, as a startup, you're always ideating. I I think it's funny that you you point out how much of a... uh, non-data-driven industry venture is as my former boss once described it it's the wild west and it's been funny to see how you know every time we think the sec is going to regulate venture they just don't and and vcs live to fight another day in the wild west doing things that should get them regulated time and time again but but they absolutely don't yeah we we should go through your backstory a little bit Uh, it'll add add some credibility to what we're about Mm -hmm. to talk about and and for context, the theme of today is on generational change and generations in venture capital. Well, more on that later, but there is an interesting pathway from mechanical engineering major and engineer at the University of California, Berkeley, in a year that I will not name, 
to to where you are today, and we can just go through the quick version and and talk about some of the, the key highlights there because it is a very interesting record. So I think you know engineering for me really was the seeds of that. You know, both my parents were very technical. My dad was a civil and mechanical engineer. My mom was a computer scientist. They both worked uh, many, many years for Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And the presumption was, again, also part of growing up in Asian culture, is like you get good grades, you go to a good school, and you become one of these five things as a profession, right? Whether it's engineer or doctor or lawyer or something that in their eyes is kind of respectable. Um, so, So Berkeley for me was, hey, I got in. I got into engineering school. That's great. Why not? Let's go do it. First year, I'm like, I am not an engineer. <laughs> it was really this this concept of, you know, I think engineers, whether it was when I was at school or it is when people are going to school now, there is a certain drive that you have to have in engineering school or even like computer science. And for me, that that drive was just very, very different, right? I think it was just this idea that, you know, there's a nagging feeling like, did I belong? Right. Right. This this didn't feel right. Although, you know, like I said, my grades weren't the best. They weren't the worst. I kind of survived for a few years. And I and I also went through a thought process like, oh, my gosh, well, just change majors. Right. Like that happens all the time. And, you know, even thought about like going to Haas. Right. Which is the business school and quickly decided against it because. I figured, and this was the advice that I got from at the time, a lot of really smart people were like, just because you graduate as an engineer doesn't mean you have to go and be an engineer, right? I think this was also going back to kind of the theme here, which is around generation. When you think about generation coming into the early 2000s, it was not like you had to go and get a job based on the profession, based on the degree that you, you graduated in, right? So because com. Everyone was doing a web startup, building a website, <laughs> course, raising yeah. millions of dollars. And it's like, who cared if they were an engineer or they were some other profession um, or other degree? They were just going off and becoming wildly successful. Yeah. So it was it was a, a very I, honestly, I think a pretty similar time to what we're experiencing right now where. You can graduate. I, I mean, I have a degree in geophysics. I certainly do not use that ninety-nine out of a hundred days of, in in a hundred days, I guess. Yeah. But the the and last week or, or a couple of weeks ago at this point, Abigail Rissi also had a mechanical engineering degree, and is in venture capital now. It, it's that is one of those pathways where learning the core fundamentals of engineering. And the frameworks aren't really that dissimilar from learning business in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah. And, and in the intro, the, the final nail was that experience at Lawrence Berkeley Lab where I'm like, well, why not go and, go and practice this? You know, take a semester off. Basically, that's what it was. It was taking a semester off and going up there and spending time with, you know, smart engineers and scientists that were doing, you know, amazing kind of awesome things. I mean, at the time... The project that I was uh, staffed on was building a linear collider. Oh no! Kidding. So, so and it was in the it was in literally the design stages. Yeah. And I was on the engineering team that had to design the the vacuum system for the particle accelerator, right? Yeah. Right, right. So it's kind of similar technology, right? Whether you're colliding particles or you're accelerating particles. But I the reason I call it the final 
nail in the coffin was I spent all this time and I, and I had, you know, some people had been there for like 20, 30 years. And I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You probably saw all this great, you know, technology and you worked on all these great projects. And, you know, I had one guy was telling me, he's like, oh, this is my second project. So it was a little bit unfair. But at the time, you're like, I was looking for like, hey, show me the, the light that this is something I can do. And, and it was just like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine being in a situation where I could be like working on one thing for many, many years. Right. Yeah, so that was, 100%. that was a perception. And that kind of took me into, uh, took me down a path post-graduation into like, okay, how do I find my way into finance, yep. business investments? And that was kind of the, the next chapter was using that CFA designation, um, which at the time was either you get an MBA or yep. if you didn't want to stop working and kind of go through that, rigor you just the cfa was kind of rising in prominence as a designation that could then help you get into that professional field right which is mostly finance and investments venture for me was not a destination that i was saying i'm going to go and get a venture job right it was a, a friend a referral kind of said hey we know at the time this was northgate capital and they and, and i got connected to one of the partners there and they were building out their investment team. Yes. And so at the time, they're like, well, we just want to bring smart people in to to do really like the analytical work, writing investment memos, work with, you know, models on valuations and things like that. So I got, like a lot of people, right, who stumble their way into ventures, if you, kn you knew someone, you got lucky, you got your foot in the door, and that was your way to then kind of build build a career out of it. So, and I, in all um, seriousness, you know, f found myself to be really lucky and really appreciated that opportunity. And so that is what was the pathway from, you know, one firm to the next, you know, and in between, I've always been myself kind of entrepreneurial in DNA. And so again, this going back to this recurring theme, going back to the prompt around Berkeley, it's like, you know, did I really belong on that side of the table? Um, being uh, in, you know, on the LP side, you know, again, it just didn't feel like it was a hundred percent there. Right? right. So Northgate kind of failed, but, but kind of natural pathway into top tier capital and really spending a lot of time working to build out their emerging manager program. And then after top tier, again, feeling this kind of itch, right? You know, it's like sort of the entrepreneurial itch, right? We all know what that feels like. Moving into Angelus, where as a platform, as a culture, an amazing sound sandbox. And so, you know, to bring home the story around sort of what you mentioned about the title is they wanted me to really help connect this vibrant community of angel investors who are now aspiring fund managers, right? Everyone is raising yeah. a small fund. Maybe, maybe less so in the last couple of months, but, right, but last year, last but, two years. Yeah, yeah but but yeah, yeah, kind of, you know, circa 2019, 2020, this was the rage, yeah, right? absolutely. And I said, well, if you want me to help and then connect, get really, con build those connections to like, you know, LPs, like family offices and maybe smaller institutions, you have to put like kind of an, an LP facing title to it. Because Angelus would have said like, well, you're a you're a venture lead and we have five venture leads that are doing different <laughs> things, right? It's kind of that funny thing. And I said, well, yeah. but you know, I, I, I would need to in the conversations attracting the LPs to have something that feels of substance. So we, we, we joke, right. And, and I'm sure 
if you go and talk to my friends at Angelos, they would laugh at this too. It's like it was sort of a little bit of a made-up name or title, name for the title to to really build a bridge into the conversation, the language that LPs speak, and and that's still very present today, right? It's like LPs really fundamentally speak a different language than VCs, especially emerging right. funds, and you have to find that bridge, and that's also part of really where I kept seeing this constant pain point around how do you be that translation layer? And that, again, informed kind of my journey into starting Revere after AngelList. Absolutely. And I, I think that's actually a really good segue from here into to moving more to the meat of generational change. Because one thing that pretty much anyone who's boots on the ground working at a VC realizes that your title means absolutely nothing. Your title can be analyst and you can be doing the work of a partner my title is the senior associate. Who knows what I do on the day-to-day? Anything under the sun, right? And those titles aren't really that important. And it, it does isolate this language gap where then you go out and you're talking to some funds where titles really do matter and they do have a clear definition. And so the idea of translation is something I, I'd like to hone in on a, a little bit here. What are some of those key areas where you're seeing gaps in translation and what steps both at Revere and external do you think we need to take to fix those? Yeah, I think it's just having a conversation, honestly. I think there's, going back to if you look at the rich history of venture capital, success begetting success was really around reputation. Absolutely. And yeah. reputation doesn't have to be verbalized, right? It's just, well, yeah, of course it's Sequoia, right? Or sure. whoever. So just having a conversation and asking the question that, well, we, we actually do need to talk about how do GPs talk to LPs and how do we insist that LPs respond and give feedback? And what I find so ironic about this, and again, there's a, a multitude of these sort of analogies, VCs have to do this with founders, right? Right. So VCs have to learn how to speak to founders and founders have to kind of understand the game of, of venture capital investing and, and that feedback loop is today very, very robust. And so it's so odd to me that... I, I, I might oppose right? that, actually. Yeah. I don't think the feedback loop is that great. But there, there is, is a feedback loop. There is a, there is a, a feedback loop. loop right. So, so, so to... Right. So, to, to okay. the nat- yeah. so the question is, right, in terms of when I say have the conversation, ask the questions, it's, it's really there was no feedback loop. Right. There was no real consistent understanding that there there has to be a communication channel in terms of how LPs invest in venture funds. And that really is what is different today is now we do have a communication channel, but going back to probably what, you know, and I'm curious to what you're saying about like the founder VC dynamic, it's not great, right? It's not Absolutely. optimized, no. right? And it's a, it's an evolving process. And anytime you have something that fits that definition, there's opportunity to build solutions around that. 100%. Yeah, and, and so I guess what I'd say, and what I'm curious to go back and forth on, on the concept of reputation too, is the influence that social media and the digital era has had on that, which I think is really fascinating because there is a fund which will get bleeped out, whose returns I recently got a copy of, and they're not good. And reputationally, you'd expect that any fund with, you know, high level of social media presence with good following with these top branded deals would have good returns. But their returns are actually not just bad, they're really bad. And this is a common story 
similarly, founders' interactions with VCs can reflect a very similar path where feedback, I think the founders get the best feedback from emerging managers frequently because they're willing to, they don't have a reputational risk by addressing the elephant in the room sometimes, which is you're not giving a very good pitch. And sometimes that's a fixable problem. Sometimes it isn't, but they're willing to say those words because there's no reputational risk. So kind of convolving those three concepts, because I know that's a few different lines of thought. When you think about the combination of reputation, the potential harmed reputation from a feedback loop and feedback cycle, and then how you see that differently play out, because I think it's a similar balance in power, founder to VC, VC to LP, but there's obviously a clear difference in that feedback loop that I, I'm curious what you think drives that and, and why you think that hasn't been resolved to this point. Well, I think you start with the premise, the status quo, which we use this line in so many different instances about, well, no one ever got fired investing in an IBM stock. Sure. Right. So where we came from in terms of how capital flows into VC funds and according to kind of this perception of good reputation, right? Notice we didn't say good returns. We said good reputation. And because of the reputation, I'm not going to get fired whether the returns are good, bad, or ugly. So there's so much of this kind of consistent behavior at the LP level that is very hard to chip away and break down. Absolutely. Right? Now, we're making headway, right? Because there is now enough clear data around like performance, right? That can say, well, look, small funds outperform. First-time funds outperform. Diverse managers outperform. So... There is now enough confluence of this data out there that you can actually go and counteract that status quo about, well, you should be doing your job. If your job is to generate returns, let's say you're at an endowment or a pension, generate returns for your stakeholders, then you can't rely on the crutch of, well, I'm not going to get fired and that's how I'm going to do my job. It should be, I have to go and get returns and I have to do it in a fiduciary driven way. So I think we're, so it's evolving. It's better. It's not all the way there. This is the fundamental problem, right? If you think about, if you abstract away, whether we're investing in venture capital or investing in real estate or whatever asset class, it's about capital flows. Who are the participants in this asset class and how does capital flow from one participant to the other? And anytime capital at very sizable amounts are flowing, there's always going to be a human element to it. Right. Yeah, because again, this is, not, this is not robo, you know, trade. This is not and robots who are trading. We'll get to AI at some point. <laughs> later, yeah. But yeah. yeah so, so if you, so if you can kind of, if you weave that narrative into what I just said about reputation, which is a very emotional human kind of driven thing to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is like, well, gosh, this data is so overwhelming in a way that you can't ignore it. And that's why you should let that influence or even dictate your behavior in terms of how that capital flows. We're moving in that direction. Right. But obviously, we're not moving wildly fast is, is I think, something you and I would both agree on. And, and so one question I've always wondered is, is on transparency of data. Why do you think, you know, obviously, you 
interview, you rate a lot of funds, and there's a lot of funds that resist that rating process, even when they have good returns. What do you think are the reasons underlying that? Well, the fundamental reason is it takes a long time for the returns to actually materialize as cash back sure, to yeah. you, right? So we're already working kind of against the grain in terms of it just takes a long time for a seed stage company to fully exit. So we can't, the, the physics of that doesn't lend itself to be said that we should move faster, right? Because it takes time. So that's the first point. And I think the second point is there's no widely accepted interim kind of mark to market, right? So again, if you think about, there's a lot of consternation and debate about like valuations, right? Like, and of course, some companies owned by two different venture firms can be held at two different values. You'd be like, like, why, right? So again, that's part of why things don't move faster is because when you try to measure things on an interim basis and it is more art than science, then you don't really have kind of any time, any real time data to be able to say, oh, this fund is doing great. Although we know it's going to take three, four, five more years for that ultimate cash to come back. Exactly. Exactly. Again, these are all little nuggets of why Revere exists. It's, It's not just the data. It's the application of the data. And when do you use it? How do you draw insight from that data? That's really what we need to move faster at the end of the day. That that makes a ton of sense. And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a question that I don't I don't think you necessarily expected to come out of this. But but when we think about this, going back to the concept of feedback and then eventually to, to generational change as well, do you think the current venture capital structure because you're talking a lot about disincentives for and basically CYA is you you'd cover you cover your ass, right? We're hovering around that driving your institutional investors, your your larger family offices. To what extent do you think that that's just because the current structure of a venture capital fund isn't actually set up to make money? Unpack that. Yeah. So I, I guess a lot of what I've struggled with is that I've seen a lot of funds, which will go nameless, raise larger and increasingly larger funds not generate returns, and the partners pay themselves millions of dollars annually out of management fees. And there's a bunch of other structural challenges with a fund, but realistically, there's no incentive for your VC. I mean, carry is some incentive, but outside of carry, there's no incentive to make more than a 3x because that's, you know, you're beating the, the NASDAQ. You can't argue with that performance at that point. And there's really... Frankly, there's not a lot of disincentive to raise one and a half X and get a lot of nice brand name companies that then allow your LPs to say, oh, they might not have great returns, but look at all these great logos we have. And that structural inefficiency, when I think about what generational change represents, when I think about the feedback loop and how LPs interact with VCs, it all comes down to that structure. I'm curious to hear your thoughts there and what you've seen. Obviously, you've evaluated... In the last year, I, I was reading the, the update. It was over 100 funds in the last year. What have you seen for people trying to change that too? The, the change has to happen at the decision maker level. So the administrators, the allocators working at these large institutions that are deploying capital, um, you know, many of them, they stay in their job for 
10, 20 years, right? So longer or longer yeah. or longer. Absolutely. So, so I think if there is a, you know, new generation of talent on the allocator and LP side, they're also going to bring in their own sort of thesis and their own pattern recognition that would then allow for this response to, well, yeah, let's look at the returns, look at the incentives. Let's not rely on the reputation. Let's not rely on, well, we've been backing their five, you know, their previous five funds. And yeah, that one's my favorite. Right. That's so cost fallacy. So, yeah. so that I think is kind of the first point I would make is when there is talent at decision maker levels that are deploying the capital and, and there are right. Then, then you start to see some of, of this change. And the second thing is these bigger firms, those partners also age themselves out as well. So, so the so if they're aging themselves out, and they were at one point in time the the real kingmakers, the ones who drove the returns, then now you've introduced this idea that an LP can say, well, all right, well that general partner's out, and maybe the succession is not well planned, and you know that junior partner who had invested in a great company is now leaving and starting their own fund. Now you have given enough ingredients to say, all right, well, maybe this is not the firm or the franchise that we can continue to back. So in somewhat of a kind of a perverted way, you almost have to grasp at these things that are not fundamental. I mean, you should be making decisions, investment decisions on a fundamental basis, not on the optics, Absolutely, right? Yeah. Or the, the, the second level kind of consequences of things. But that again, goes back to sort of the, the human nature of venture capital that makes it so different, right? So unique compared to public markets where you literally, you know, have real-time stock prices when every hedge fund is measured at the mark-to-market at the end of the month, and there's nowhere to hide. In venture, there's places to hide. And there, there always will be unless we stop the places to hide, I think. So let's frame that in, in the generational change sense. Obviously, there's aging out. What do you think, so if, if somebody is a, young out listening to the podcast what are the steps that you think they should take if they have these ideas and want to implement them on their side so they need to be in organizations that embrace new thought right and this is the other element of i think kind of the i call it the what people don't tell you about venture capital is there is a very very strong influence around decision making process at these organizations and how that impacts who they invest in as from a venture firm, right? An LP investing in a venture firm, how they invest, how they communicate, all that stuff. So I think the first thing is really just there has to be a a decision-making process, organization, a board, investment committee that is receptive to doing it a different way. Openness to change. Openness to change, right? So again, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is there has to be enough of an opportunity set to present the concept of choice, right? So if you think about Sand Hill Road, there's probably, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there's probably 10 kind of very storied franchises. So when you can only choose from 10, there is no real kind of concept of choice. It's like, well, as an asset class, you get a in one or two or three of the 10, you're kind of good. Right, you right? can create your index on a small number. Exactly. So... Now that we have an environment, you know, whether the number is 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, or, or double that, 
there is a perception, a concept, there is choice, right? So then as an allocator, if you have choice, then you now have the idea that you have to go and do the research and the diligence to find the best out there. So those are the two things, right? So the decision-making process and organization and culture in which the allocator is investing into the asset class. And then the asset class itself has to have enough investment opportunities that makes it very clear that there is a tiering of those returns and, you know, what is considered a good investment versus a bad investment. And you brought up a couple of interesting things there. I'm going to start with the first one, which is, you know, you mentioned the 3,000, 4,000 VCs. I obviously have my own thoughts on the sheer number and quantity, but just from a broad macro, do you think that's going to persist having been through now two recessions effectively? Do you think that persists in the coming years? Well, I, I don't think the number is important. I think the number we should be looking at is what's the right number of startup companies? Right. Right. So if you look at that number, I think everyone would agree that there is no good time or bad time to start a company. Innovation still, should still happen in up cycles and down cycles. And people that are starting companies need to get support, whether if the support is capital or the support is some value add in terms of getting an introduction to a customer. So if you start with that as a premise in terms of what's the right number of startup companies, then the next logical question is like, what is the right number of investors to support those founders in the earliest stages? And that's not a number that can be measured, right? Right. It's just if you as a, an aspiring investor, whether you're an angel investor or you're an emerging fund manager, if you are adding real value, and you'll know it because the founder will take your check, right? I was, I was about to yeah. ask and, and say, what is the point where you should know that it's the right time to be launching your own fund versus being somewhere else? Well, I think you have to listen to the founder. Right. Right. So for example, if I've got a huge balance sheet and I can make 100 angel investments, the, the fact that I can make 100 angel investments does not become the pre-qualification for me to be a venture fund. Absolutely right. not. No. But if I make 100 investments and pick a number, 90 out of the 100 founders come back and say, you really helped me on my journey. You did an amazing thing. I appreciate you. Why aren't you starting a venture fund? Right. That's, That's the difference. Know. That's right. And so for people, and we've talked a lot on the podcast with a couple of other guests, a lot of us write micro checks into angel investments and try to provide value outside of the fund. But obviously a lot of us aren't in a situation where we could start a fund. And and I think that's when we go back to the idea of structural challenges, generational change, one of those problems is just you have to be worth a lot of money to even think about starting a fund. I've thought about that for a while in, in ways that I was listening to a podcast with Turner Novak. He used a creative strategy to get his GP buy-in underwritten. A lot of earlier, younger, you know, late 20s, early 30s VCs do. But it does seem to some extent that just because you know it's the right time doesn't mean you'll be able to do it regardless. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts there. Are there any creative solutions you've seen? And what do you think could change that part of the culture itself from from an institutional side? What would you know, maybe somebody doesn't have a hundred thousand, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to put in as a GP buy-in. Maybe they're stopped by something else. They have a family. They, you know, can't generate their own health insurance. Yeah, yeah. we we've already attacked the low-hanging fruit, right? So if you look at what Angelus has done, or 
or, or Carta, right, or any organization out there that has abstracted away the friction points to run a fund, right, or be an investor, right, because, you know, Angel has pioneered the concept of being a syndicate, right, which is like you have, yeah. you have a full-time job and you found access to a good deal and you can go somewhere and raise more money and you don't have to worry about putting the SPV together, you don't have to worry about creating the the deal memo website, right? It's all there and it's all click of a button and people invest in, and it's amazing, right? So the low hanging fruit was really like operationally, it was really, really difficult between the lawyers for the fund formation to the fund accounting, all of that has been abstracted away. At a cost point, that means you don't have to go raise tens of millions of dollars for your fund, have the fee income to support your job as a fund manager. So. So I would say the low-hanging fruit there is gone. And then the next question is, well, what, is, what does it mean to be relevant as a fund manager? Yeah. And again, this goes back to just having capital to deploy in this environment is not good enough because founders are smarter, founders are more selective, and founders demand that you add value. And capital is no longer, capital itself is no longer added. Capital is a commodity. Good, That's, exactly. You'll hear that soundbite again and again. Exactly. So the next, the next leg of this in terms of how do we really start to create some kind of durability in supporting newer fund managers, getting them started, is having those funds have that amazing success, right? Where they have that 500x, the 1,000x. And yep. then that becomes their bonafide track record to say, look, I was there early, I got access, and look at what that track record, how has it materialized? And that's and that would be the next part of this, that we're now gonna see enough data around performance within this category of emerging managers, where, again, it will be so overwhelming that people cannot not have an allocation A to real, this far. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that that, that raises one other interesting question for your early career VCs. And that question, largely, when you think about the concept of adding value, everyone obviously wants to be a value add VC. What are some ways that you see that go wrong unintentionally for early career VCs? And this is this is normally a question we ask at the end, but what's the, the advice that you give broadly to early career VCs who think that they want to launch a fund someday? So Revere, you know, we're, we are now becoming more well-known as uh, becoming kind of this rating agency for venture funds. Absolutely, and yep. in our, in our scoring rubric has 20 different categories and within the different categories, there is a lot of emphasis on value add, right? And so I'll share a few of those. So number one, it's how are you adding value as it relates to generating revenue, right? Getting pilot customers. Yep, converting. How, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly, contracts in hand. How are you helping with those sort of growth playbooks, right? And it could be like, you know, the hiring, right? There's some venture firms that even have like inside recruiters, right, that are helping with hiring. Um, another element of value add that we measure is, is community, right? In this generation, how you activate your founder community for the benefit of other founders in the portfolio is really important. And so those are just a, a few examples. Well, and then obviously it's, you know, I leave this out, but it is just for, for formality. 
from our scoring categories, how are you helping those founders in your portfolio get the next round of financing? Right. right. So when you look at those four subcategories, when we have these conversations, when we go through the due diligence with these fund managers, just by near, merely asking the questions on these four categories, it's a forcing function that they should be thinking about this. There should be a more, much more formalized way of how an investor builds their toolkit for adding value to founders. And that's what I mean by like going back to just having the conversation, just being able to surface the idea that you should be doing something in these categories. Now, you can't necessarily do all of those things equally well, but on a measurement perspective in terms of how we score, where we say, is this a strength? Is it not a strength? Or are they just doing the bare minimum, which is the industry average? Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, I so, mean but simply, so to, I, you yeah. know, it's a long-winded way of answering the question, but just merely saying, here is a framework that you, this is how we would measure. And that measure word is really, really important because we need to move away from what happens today, which is like everyone's got the amazing slide in the pitch deck that says, let me show you this case study where this founder loves me and I did all this stuff, right? And everyone is going to have one, two, maybe three case studies. Yeah, We have found that there are some managers that literally will measure almost like in a CRM, how much revenue generation that they've helped affect. Like that's amazing, right? That's measurable, that's quantifiable. So so value add to me needs to move into a realm of being much more quantifiable and much more defined on what are the levers that a fund manager is expected to add value. No, I, I think that makes complete sense. Now, so going back to this idea of having the conversation, I'm gonna ask you a very, very broad, open-ended question. Why do you think people aren't having the conversation? Part of this is that there is a lack of awareness or a misconception in terms of what do LPs want to hear. So whether you search Twitter or you search YouTube or you ask your your friend who's raised venture capital or, or, or have raised money from an LP, they always are curious about like, well, what do LPs want to hear, right? This is a, a recurring, recurring thing. And the problem is LPs will often say the same thing, and it's very generic. They might say something like, well, we care about ownership percentage. What's your ownership percentage? You know, <laughs> it's like, well, I, I never, I never knew that ownership was, you know, it, it's a, it's an artifact of how much money do you make when you do have a good outcome? Absolutely. Yep. But the part of the problem is there's not enough open dialogue and transparency on the LP side around real tough questions. They, again, have this brace, they have this crutch of saying, well, I'm just going to throw out like the, the generic stuff, like what's your GP commitment? Right. As if like someone putting 1% versus 10% is going to generate better returns, right? It's, right. It's, just, it's just a way to point to something to say, well, I think it should be 10, right? If it's not 10, I'm not going to look at it, right? So it's just it's, really a filtering mechanism. That's, that's also fascinating. Just as quick aside on the GP commitment in general, I've always found that to be the weirdest signal that people use because there's some GPs who are so filthy rich that a 2% GP commitment is basically effectively like a drop in the bucket for their annual income. And then there are some people where I see, you know, people who came from typical jobs putting up one and a half, two 2%. You're like, 
that's your entire life right there. And and the difference is very rarely recognized in that commitment. And I don't know, I've always thought that it should be off net worth, but that's that's a topic for uh, Yeah, so the yeah. um sort of the appreciation of of what is it that LPs really want to see when they do the due diligence? Because honestly, you know, to give full credit to LPs, when they dive in, they are asking hard questions. Absolutely. The yeah. problem is when are they diving in and how do GPs prompt that dive in and how do we bring that dive in set of questions earlier in the process? And that's really what, what we do at Revere, right? Is we're surfacing through our conversations with the GP, through pouring over their data room and putting on our LP hat. And we start asking those hard questions across these 20 categories and we produce this really approachable report we then have front-loaded this whole kind of gauntlet of questions that LPs eventually ask, but they ask so late in the process, or they ask it in a way where it's like, oh, of the 100 we looked at this year, we only did due diligence on 10, and that's the 10 that we really started asking our hard questions. In my opinion, it should be, we should do that full diligence on 100, write these reports, and then the LPs can read the report, and they're going to already have like literally half of the work done. That's really what will start to kind of change this behavior. Yeah, I, I think that makes complete sense. So we're running out of time here, which is unfortunate because I think this is a really interesting line of thought. And also, we haven't really talked that much about generational change. We've talked a lot about the LP and VC dynamic, which is, I think sometimes these podcasts go on a little journey of their own. And, and that's the beautiful part about running a podcast to, to start. Really quickly, before we transition to the last segment of the podcast, which, as you know, are the, the three questions that we ask everybody, as we think, you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast about how generations can be defined in sort of cycles. For not this next upcoming generation, the post-SVB fallout generation that I think will be very interesting to see what those investors turn out as, but for my generation of investors, the people who started in venture somewhere in the 2022 bull run, what broad level thoughts do you have on things that they should be thinking about building their careers? What sort of impacts do you hope will be different? What do you expect to come and what do you want to come from this generation? So first and foremost, I think the mindset has to be thinking about long-term. Yeah. I think there's going to be so much natural attrition, not because of performance, not because they aren't good investors, but because they said, you know what, this is damn hard and, and I don't want to do it. So the long-term orientation and thinking is going to be, a, a, in my opinion, the primary separation tool of who survives and who thrives in this, next, in the, in this generation that you d- define. So that's the first thing. And then I think the second thing is really appreciating that venture, in my mind, is becoming so much more scientific. We don't even have to name the names, but how many tools are out there for tracking the multitude of information at the startup level, right? Yeah, well, it's the tons. social media, right? There's tons, tons of those companies that are now are systematically integrated in terms of the entire life cycle of how VCs invest, whether it's sourcing, diligence, portfolio monitoring, right? So the scientific nature in terms of how it affects this generation you define and their investment behavior is going to be so, so critical. So it's not just about having that amazing instinct. 
it's not just about being able to speak technically to a technical founder. It's actually how do you create this feedback loop with data to make better decisions? And that's going to be an alpha driver. The people who can do that well and do what I, I said before, which is that long-term orientation, have very clear, well-defined thesis of how do I make returns in the next 10 years. Those two things are the winning combination. No, I, I think that makes a ton of sense. And frankly, I think you're already seeing a lot of people start to think about even just chat GPT. And, and I did say we talk about AI. Well, we're going to talk very briefly, but I, I've been spending a lot of time automating our processes at the firm with chat GPT and realistically not chat GPT, but with the open AI API and large language models broadly. I think a lot of other VCs are starting to think about how they can better use software and we're seeing, so at Builders, we invest in these old, slow-moving industries. You're starting to see an adoption of software similar to what you're seeing in agriculture, where it's a place where VC has never really used a whole lot of technology, and they're starting to. Uh, and maybe that's driven by our generation of investors, people who grew up around tech, around computers. Maybe it's just a artifact of the times. But either way, that that is what, in my opinion, is going to be driving a lot of change in the next cycle of venture capitalists, and I'm, I'm excited to see that play out. All right, so we're going to wrap up. Eric does not, unfortunately, get to escape from the questions that every early career VC is asked. We're going to start off with our favorite question, which is, Eric, what company, public or private, do you want to see fail and why? So I'm going to answer this a little bit differently in the, in the vein of, you know, there's a company that I, you know, I envy for their success. And, and maybe that, that envy is why, how I'd answer this, <laughs> uh, right? Because answer, so taking, taking the cop out <laughs> answer. So, you know, I, a lot of, a lot of respect for, for Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's amazing how through all the cycles and the generation where the philosophy of, you know, again, Buffett and Munger, around how they really understand, you know, going back to this thing about human behavior, the, the markets, you know, there's, they repeat themselves in terms of how they behave and how humans behave to that. And to be able to generate sort of those long-term returns, cycle in, cycle out, even when you have new technologies come in and disrupt traditional industries, and they are investors in a lot of traditional industries, and how they generate returns for shareholders, it's a lot to envy, right? And it's a lot to respect. And so, um, so apologize for the cop out there, but uh, I think that's no, it's I, worth highlighting. I, I think that's very fair, and and part of that is, it's not just reflective Berkshire Hathaway. There, you want to see a changing of the guard from old, historically long-term. Yeah, successful who's the next Berkshire? The next Berkshire, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. I think that's actually a very fair answer, a very unique answer, and a very unique approach to the right. question. So next up. You've had a much longer career to reflect on than many of the people on this podcast. In that career, what's been your biggest regret so far and why? I would say the biggest regret for me is when you have conviction, you should act on that conviction. Yeah. And not be afraid to have all the data points, not be afraid of the stigma of like, oh my gosh, like why would you leave that job to do something new, right? So so that would be, that would be my regret is sort of like, you know... I, just should have been a founder earlier, should have been an entrepreneur earlier in my career. Because so much what I've learned now in retrospect is it's almost priceless the lessons you learn as an entrepreneur that you, you literally can't pay enough money to learn those lessons. So if you learn those lessons earlier in life, the dividends in monetary rewards is going to more than pay for itself later. I, I think that's a great answer. And 
I'm glad that you're an entrepreneur now. If, if you weren't, I think it would have been very doubtful that we would have met a couple of years ago at, at a random uh, yacht club yeah, in Newport, yeah, yeah, as, yeah. as one does. Yeah. And then the last question that we always wrap up, a decent number of people who listen to this podcast who are thinking about a career in venture capital or, you know, in college looking at finance job options, you obviously had quite the pathway. What advice would you give to those people? So on the one hand, venture is a job and it's at times glamorous and at times not glamorous at all. So I think the first thing to really consider is, is this the right job for me? And knowing that it is a job, it's not just simply deploying capital, showing up on the doorstep of founder with a, a pizza when they're working late, you know, so, so they're, you know, again, we laugh at this, but it, it's true. So I think the first thing is really appreciate and understanding that this is a job and it's a very difficult job and it's often a very thankless job, but when it works, it really, really works. So, so my advice is to really understand and appreciate the risk and reward. And sometimes that means you have to do some self-reflection on that. Sometimes you have to ask smart people who've been in the industry. And sometimes you have to go and find an organization to be an apprentice in that environment. Absolutely. So um, there's an amazing, amazing multitude of fellowships and programs that help people discover if this is the job for them which I think is amazing, which is great. And so I, my advice is go and seek one of those things out, right, yeah. and make those connections. Take advantage of the resources available. Yeah. I think that's, and frankly, almost everyone is, every venture firm is willing to hire an unpaid intern if push comes to shove. <laughs> and not to say that I'd recommend that, and I, I think unpaid interns are also something we need to get better about paying people for doing work. But either way, if you're looking to experience venture capital, there are many ways to do so. Eric, this has been a really great conversation. We, we could have kept going for a very long time there, but I don't want to make us late to the, the next meeting. It's been great having you on. Well, it's been my pleasure, and, and thank you for all the thoughtful questions.